What does it mean to be a leader in the Python community? Does it mean you contribute to open source projects, you speak at conferences, you start the largest user group, you write a book, you be a core contributor to the language? The answer is yes. And that's why Jessica McKellar won the Frank Wilson Award for contributions to the Python community. She is the guest on this episode of Talk Python to Me. It's number 30, recorded Thursday, September 24th, 2015. I'm a developer in many senses of the word Cause I make these applications But I also use these verbs to make this music I construct it line by line Just like when I'm coding another software design In both cases, it's about design patterns Anyone can get the job done, it's the execution that matters I have many interests, sometimes conflict Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python The language, the libraries, the ecosystem, and the personalities this is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy. Keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. This episode is brought to you by Hired and Optbeat. Thank them for supporting the show on Twitter where they're at Hired underscore HQ and at Optbeat. Hey everyone, I don't have any news this week, so let's get right to the show. Let me introduce Jessica. Jessica McKellar is a startup founder, software engineer, and open source developer living in San Francisco, California. She works at Dropbox and enjoys the internet, networking, low-level systems engineering, relational databases, tinkering on electronics projects, and contributing to and helping others contribute to open source software. Her motto is, be the change you want to see in the world. And she has been a director for the Python Software Foundation. Jessica, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on the show. You've been a long time sort of Python hero to me. I've, I've, <laughs> <laughs> I've seen some of your talks that you've done at conferences and keynotes, and they were really inspiring. So I'm excited I really to talk. appreciate that. You're welcome. I'm, I'm excited to talk to you about this. Thank you. So before we get into all the awesome stuff you're doing at the outer edge of the, the Python world, let's you know, maybe take a step back and start you could tell me a little bit about how you got into programming and how you got into Python. What's your story? Yeah, absolutely. So I was not one of those people who uh, was programming since birth. I was a big sort of science nerd in high school, and I actually declared chemistry as my first major. And I, I actually have a chemistry degree. That's my first bachelor's degree. Um, but I had a bunch of friends. So I went to MIT, and I had a bunch of friends who were pursuing computer science degrees uh, while I was busy uh, pursuing my chemistry degree. And you know, I would sort of look at them out of the corner of my eye, <laughs> and I would look at what they were learning, and it seemed like this, they, they were really learning this toolkit. Like, they were learning a toolkit full of tools for solving many different types of problems in the world, and that seemed very attractive to me, and also, frankly, very different from what I was getting with my chemistry degree. Um, and I, I, I wanted to, to try out what, what experience, like, what learning that toolkit felt like, and, and I ended up taking some computer science classes. I was pretty immediately hooked and uh, ended up getting a computer science degree and then also a CS master's. That's cool. What was your first programming class language? Well, yeah, so I was I was at MIT right when they were uh, in the middle of this big transition from uh, Scheme, which is a dialect of Lisp, to Python. So my first couple of classes were, were, were in Scheme, uh, and then my sort of the back half, uh, many of them were in Python. Oh, that's nice. So my first computer science class was also in Scheme, and I do wish it was in Python. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no disrespect at all, but Python's just so much better, in my opinion. 
I mean, Scheme is a very interesting learning language, uh, but I, I think that, so there was a very concerted, so, so the reason why there were, or one of the reasons for this transition was, like, some pretty serious declining enrollment numbers in the computer science program, and so it was part of this big revamp to make the program accessible, A, to, a, like, a diverse set of backgrounds. You know, I think that there had been a sense previously that you really sort of needed to have already been programming, you know, in high school before for you to really seriously consider doing it at, 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 at university. And, and they wanted to open up the door uh, towards a, a more diverse set of, of backgrounds and, and to make it also a, a more interdisciplinary curriculum. And, and uh, I think enrollment has been, um, you know, sort of skyrocketing since that change, which is exciting for me. That's really great. I don't know why, but it's definitely... I definitely get the sense that Python is more welcoming to people from different backgrounds, and it just seems to bring greater diversity. I do conference speaking. I do training in a variety of languages. And when I do Python, it feels like the people in the audience are much more representative of the general population. I I don't know why. Maybe you have better insight than I do, but it's a good thing for whatever reason that's true, you know? Yeah, and so certainly, A, the Python community has made very concerted efforts internationally to be a very welcoming community, in particular to uh, first-time programmers. And then also, I mean, the language, sort of this batteries included philosophy means that if you're just learning how to program and maybe you're not sure if this is for you, I mean, the fact that after just a couple of hours of learning the language basics... Uh, and then a couple of lines of code, you can do something that is actually pretty exciting. Um, it really hooks people. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, programming is so fun and and so interesting. But when you're new, it's not fun and interesting. There's all <laughs> there's all these little terrible details like how do I declare a variable and why does a semicolon go there and why do I need to know how to declare a class to declare a function just to like print? You know, there's like all these mm-hmm. stuff you've got to make sort of make your way through believing on the other side and there will be something interesting and cool you can do, but it takes a long time with a lot of languages. And like you say, like Python, you get to that, that gratification a lot quicker. Yeah. So what was it like doing uh, computer science at MIT? I mean, that's, it's one of those schools that's definitely up there on a pedestal and I bet it's a, a pretty interesting environment. Can you tell me what that was like? Yeah, well, the pedestal, pedestalization is funny because honestly, the school is very similar to lots of other um, you know, STEM-focused universities, uh, in, you know, in the country and around the world. And the thing that you really benefit from at MIT is the network. But yeah, you know, I received a nice, rigorous computer science education. Um, I learned a lot. Uh, I one of my um, <laughs> one of my fondest memories, uh, although maybe it wasn't fond at the time. So I, I had this like fairly compressed computer science education there because I, I spent the first two years getting a chemistry degree and then the last two years getting a, a CS degree, and so I ended up sort of like the time from first computer science class to taking a grad classes was rather condensed. <laughs> and I have this really distinct and fond memory of taking, uh, there's, there's a sort of famous operating systems class, uh, 6828. And like, that was the class where I really learned how to be a systematic debugger. Because if, I mean, if you're, when you're building an operating system from scratch, and this wasn't in Python, but you know, it, debugging is, is, is universal to all, all programming languages. But when you can't trust like your page table implementation, you can't like trust anything about um, your kernel. Um, y- you really learn how to be systematic about these things, and I, I look back on that very fondly. Is this like sort of very rigorous? It was very hard for me at the time, but I learned a ton from it. 
I can imagine that, you know, if you mess up the memory implementation or something, right? Like, <laughs> right. that's pretty critical. It's not just like you're off a little bit, right? Something goes really wrong. So, yeah, that's really, I'm, I'm sure that was interesting. Was that in C? Yeah, and a lot of assembly. Yeah, I'm sure it was fun. I Like you said, I, I'm sure the, the most important part is just being around a bunch of smart people, super excited about programming, just kind of immersing yourself in that world. Yeah, totally. The reason I reached out recently to you is you got a, a big honor in the Python community, and you won this thing called the Frank Wilson Award. Yeah. Congratula- yeah, congratulations on that. You want to oh, talk about you. that a bit? Maybe tell us all what it is first. Sure. It's mostly a recognition of a sort of sustained involvement and investment in the community in particular. And, and that is, <laughs> that is pretty much my cup of tea here. Uh, so I do, you know, I have contributed to the language. I'm a maintainer for um, various open source Python libraries. Um, but a lot of what I'm invested in is the community side. I guess some of the things that I've done over the, over the years have included um, being an organizer for the Boston Python user group, uh, which became the largest user group in the world. How um, big is that? Several thousand people. That's, that's pretty awesome. You can't have everybody attend, right? Uh, no, you can't. But, <laughs> but it's this really wonderful both sort of online and offline community. And there, I mean, there are a bunch of people who deserve a ton of credit, credit for this. It's certainly not a, a one-person effort. But par- part of the... The, a, a big part of the growth was around us making a very concerted investment in attracting and retaining sort of diverse backgrounds in the community in Boston. You know, so Boston, it's, it's a college town. You have a ton of students. Um, there are a bunch of fields adjacent to just sort of pure software engineering that are very, very well represented. Like, um, you know, it's a big biotech community. You know, the sciences are very well represented there. Yeah, you've got all that high tech stuff on what's that Route One Twenty Eight or something out, sort of on the ring out there. There's a, there's a, yeah, yeah, a yeah. lot of really cool companies and yes. So you have this opportunity to have a bunch of sort of really interdisciplinary, wonderful interdisciplinary discussions, and then also to be very concerted about attracting, you know, d- diversity amongst other demographics. So we had a, a very concerted push where it was getting more women into the community, for example, to get more students into the community, and that was a big part of our growth. Um, and that and that model, it, it, sort of the model that we built out was um, starting with sort of an introductory series of of programming workshops and building that into a, a pipeline of um, sort of project nights where you come and you can get mentorship on whatever projects you're working on to intermediate Python workshops and then sort of being well well situated at that point to be just a general fluent member of the community. And so this sort of pipeline model has been emulated in a bunch of other cities um, and, and has proven pretty successful. Sure. I, I currently am not in Portland, Oregon, but I live in Portland, Oregon. The, the Python user group there seems to be modeled very much like that. They've got like a peer mentoring night and then once a month they've got like, you know, more formal speaking and then they've got a lot of different levels. And I think that that's really pretty key to making it successful, like you say. Yeah, and I've, I've actually been to the Portland user group on a couple of occasions. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, very cool. You know, it seems to me like if you're just a student or somebody, if you were to go to... I don't know, a user group with some famous speaker talking about the nuanced bits of some advanced piece of the language or some library or technology, right? That's sort of inaccessible to you. But I think having this this pipeline that slowly brings people more in is, is probably probably good. Yeah, totally. And, and you want the super advanced stuff too, right? I definitely want to be, you know, have an opportunity to talk with 
experts on advanced topics, but having, you know, sort of having the beginner, the intermediate, and the advanced topics covering your, your uh, attendee base is definitely important. Yeah, that's super cool. Okay, so uh, Python uh, user group in Boston, you were going to name some other things. <laughs> I derailed you. I know you have a bunch more. I spent a lot of time speaking. I'm sorry. I, w- I mean, I was a director for the Python Software Foundation for a couple of years, um, a, ch- a co-chair for the Outreach and Education Committee, which um, is sort of specifically dedicated to you know, br- bringing Python into learning, like schools and learning communities and attracting diverse audiences. So what level were you focused at? Was that university? Was that high school? General? Like- it's really everything. And, and actually, a lot of it is sort of uh, learning opportunities and learning communities outside of the formal education system. Um, so supporting a lot of these uh, you know, workshops for you know, sort of a diversity-focused workshops or perhaps like an after-school program for kids where they might not otherwise have a formal opportunity to learn how to program. It was really the full spectrum. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. Um, a lot of international um, investments, which is really cool. So we've definitely given grants to people on probably, probably every continent except Antarctica. Yeah, which is very cool. <laughs> yeah, there's not a lot. There's probably only scientists on Antarctica, we'll, aren't there? We'll get them, though. We'll get them. <laughs> they probably brought Python with them, actually. <laughs> Keeping it warm in some hut. One of the things that I really liked that you did was a talk, I think it was in New Zealand at Kiwi PyCon. Is that right? I did give one of those, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you call, you said, uh, ch- you titled it something like, Choose Your Own Python Adventure. Do you remember that talk? I do, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was really, really good. And let me see if I can summarize it. We could talk about it a little bit. So, you know, you, you kind of said like, look, we want development and programming in Python to be wonderful and delightful. And there's a lot of positive stuff happening, like you talked about uh, the adoption growth and things like that. But you wanted to make sure that it keeps growing. And there was maybe some challenges that you said, look, we need to address these things. The number one issue that you brought up, which I thought was pretty interesting and resonated with sort of my experience as well, was Python on Windows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what's the problem with Python on Windows, even though it is getting better? It is it is definitely getting better. And the talk was a couple of years ago, and there have been some, some you know, there's been a lot of um, investment since then. But th- this stems from, I think, an issue that is, is common in me- many communities. And, uh, you know, also, like, many startups. Like, there are many contexts in which this is true, which is just that the developers... Um, are using a different environment than the preponderance of the users. So the vast majority of people who are programming in Python are programming on Windows, and very few of the people contributing to C, like the C Python code base, uh, use Windows. And that creates a disconnect around, you know, you you need to be you need to have a good understanding of what the experience is, in particular, sort of the early experience, the onboarding experience, the installation experience for the vast majority of your users and t- take that empathy back and invest it in, uh, in the language. Um, and so, so a lot of it stems from that, just not having a lot of people regularly experiencing what it's like to be a beginner in the language on Windows. Um, and, and so I think the key challenge is, a, a, like attracting folks who do have that background and welcoming them into the development community, and then also just being more conscientious about and proactive about... Um, addressing that very large segment of our user base, and some of this is um, 
so I, so I, I come from, from sort of startup land. I've been through a series of startups and acquisitions and I, I tend to think about everything in life, uh, including the Python community in terms of like a pretty standard, um, like user retention funnel analysis. <laughs> and if you, if you think about it, it's like, okay, Python wants to be a language that hopefully like many, many people are still using in a, for a diverse, um, set of, uh, uh, you know, in many diverse areas, uh, many years for many years to come, and and to do that, we need to be getting new developers and retaining them. And it's sort of like your at your big top of the funnel is all of these new users, most of which are on Windows. And then you know you get those folks to use the language, maybe in a basic way, maybe in school. You want to retain them through them using it professionally, and then you want to convert some of those folks, hopefully, into becoming active contributors back to the language and community. And the thing that we can—it's it, easy to—it's easy to focus on th- on things that impact a smaller set of the funnel if you're not really conscientious of what the broader funnel looks like. Because, like, there's a disproportionate impact for focusing on the top of the funnel, the widest part of the funnel. So, like, investments that you make that make the first five minutes of using Python better are going to have an impact on, like, hundreds of thousands of people. Um, and then fixing, like, a particular bug that affects, you know, like, some specific bug in some specific library potentially is still very important, but, 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 um, may may impact a smaller number of people, which is not to say that we shouldn't do both. But we should be we should be conscientious as a community about ensuring that we're investing enough in the top of the funnel. Yeah, it's really interesting to view the ecosystem and life cycle of a a language through growth hacking terms. But that's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it makes I perfect can't help sense. It. No, of course, <laughs> and it makes perfect sense. You're right. There is a disconnect. I mean, if you take the time and you make, let's just focus on Windows, but it could be basically getting started anywhere. If you make getting started with Python on Windows better, you're not going to go to the conference necessarily and go, oh, that's the guy that made that better because everybody there like doesn't hit that problem. They're way past it, right? But if if you make you know coroutines just slightly more efficient, they might cheer when they see you or something, you know? But But like you said, the people that are coming in, they they feel that pain and i've done a lot of training where you know there's 30 dell and hp laptop screens or you know backs facing me and there's a lot of well it says python is not found when i type python it's like okay well did you restart the command line the command prompt after you installed it there's just all that friction right yeah and to, and to be clear, I'm not. I'm definitely not knocking. So folks should do what they're passionate about, and if the thing that people are passionate about is in fact like optimizing how coroutines work, that's 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 fantastic. It is sort of collectively as a community, we should we should value and we should incentivize and recognize the the efforts that do impact this big part of the funnel that has historically been underserved. Yeah. So you know, I just I I totally agree, and I I, th- I guess I should recommend that people watch that video of yours, <laughs> even though it is a few years ago, I'll put it in the show notes because I think it is, like you said, it, it's a place to have where there's sort of low hanging fruit that can have really big impact on people. So what do you think about things like IDEs and, and stuff like that, that maybe do a little more handholding for getting people started? This episode is brought to you by Hired. Hired is a two-sided, 
curated marketplace that connects the world's knowledge workers to the best opportunities. Each offer you receive has salary and equity presented right up front, and you can view the offers to accept or reject them before you even talk to the company. Typically, candidates receive five or more offers in just the first week, and there are no obligations, ever. Sounds pretty awesome, doesn't it? Well, did I mention there's a signing bonus? Everyone who accepts a job from Hired gets a $2,000 signing bonus. And as Talk Python listeners, it gets way sweeter. Use the link hired.com slash talkpython to me, and Hired will double the signing bonus to $4,000. Opportunities knocking. Visit hired.com slash talkpython to me and answer the call. I mean, in general, I think that, that that's that's great uh, for people where it works and for environments where it works, and it's certainly they're very common in schools. I have a, I have what I don't actually know if this is a majority opinion or a minority opinion, but I have a strong opinion on this, which is that I think that you know, so in general with Python, it's like there's one explicitness is better than implicitness, and like there's hopefully one obvious and and good and correct way to do things. One of the places where we don't sort of adhere to that philosophy is in how we recommend that people get started. And I actually think that there's an opportunity for us to be more opinionated with new learners about how to set up their environment in a way that will sort of maximize their chance of being successful new learners of the language. So like if you, if you currently, if you, like if you go to python.org right now and you like look, try to follow the instructions for how to get your development environment set up, um, there, it's like there are many forking recommendations and we, we, like, we try to be this sort of neutral place. And I understand why there's a temptation to be, to present yourself as like neutral and providing all the options. But the problem is that a new learner doesn't know enough to know what the, like to determine what the right answer is. And so like being opinionated about potentially an IDE, I mean, maybe the answer is an IDE, maybe it's not and just like a super vanilla, um, like sort of terminal-based um, education is okay, but we, I think we should be considering having a more opinionated stance on what development environment we recommend for new learners. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you don't want to alienate uh, some significant portion of the population saying, use Emacs, don't use Emacs, use PyCharm, don't use PyCharm, whatever, right? But when you're new, recommendations, if you say, well, here's four good choices, and then, like you say, it's just, it's tough. So... Do do this, get started, then make your choices down the road or something. Yeah, I'm not really sure what the choice is or the right choice is either. But but I think it's a conversation worth having. Yeah, I definitely think it's a conversation worth having. So one of the things you did, as you said, for a while you were the PSF director. So what does the director do and what's that like? I bet that's a, a crazy role to have. <laughs> and so and just to clarify, there, there are several directors um, okay. that work together sort of as a committee. And... Um, so this is the so the Python Software Foundation is a five hundred one c three nonprofit, and it's it's sort of the stewarding arm for the community, and it also as this nonprofit has the ability to collect and disperse funds towards investments in the community. So a big part of what we do is to sort of get funding and then reinvest it in the community um, in a smart way. We also do things like underwrite PyCon. So those are the, those are the two big things that we do. And there's also there's also sort of an aspect with this investment of and so like what are you investing in? You want to invest in accelerating 
development of the language, invest in um, development of our of the popular libraries and maybe new libraries, new initiatives. Not new anymore, but you know, back in the day, we gave a big grant to PyPy, for example. Um, so, you know, potentially new new initiatives that would accelerate the language or broaden the set of domains in which Python is an excellent language to use, and then also investing in like local community initiatives, which includes everything from local workshops to regional Python conferences. Okay, yeah, that's really cool. Does uh, trying to promote Python three fall under that banner? Yes, yes, I would say yes. We we tend to, I mean, so just to be clear, the the, the PSF doesn't try to dictate sort of details of the language, but definitely Python 3 is important, A, because it's the future of Python, and B, because it's important that as a community we communicate a clear direction externally. Like, it can be very confusing, again, potentially to new learners and maybe companies that are thinking about what languages they want to use for a new software stack. Um, Like, they want to be confident that the Python community knows what it's doing and has a clear sort of future (laughs) direction. So to the extent that 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 is a part of sort of the outward communication mission of the PSF, yeah, that's definitely important to us. And we also, like, we we have funded, um, we've given away grants to to port, like, major libraries to Python 3 and things like that. Right, sure. I had Chris McDonough on the show, and he's talked about... You know, you guys, I don't know if you were involved directly, but, you know, PF, PSF sort of nudged him to get Pyramid to run on Python 3, where he was, yeah, totally. you know, not exactly rushing in to get it done because he was <laughs> actually working. <laughs> Things like that. Right now, professionally, you're working at Dropbox, right? Out in San Francisco? Yep. Mm-hmm. That must be a pretty awesome place to be. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, so, uh as I said earlier, I, or as I alluded to earlier, I, I come from sort of a series of startups and acquisitions, and the latest startup and acquisition <laughs> have landed me at Dropbox. Um, and I had been in I had been in Boston for ten years, coming out of university, and sort of the inexorable pull of Silicon Valley finally got a hold of us. <laughs> we all moved out west, and uh, yeah, so I'm a director of engineering at Dropbox. I I run uh, the engineering group that is responsible for all of the sort of platform software. So this includes the desktop clients, our mobile apps, and web as a platform. Uh, Incidentally, Guido is a part of this group. Yeah, that's that's (laughs) awesome. So what's it like to work with him? Yeah, I mean, he's... Well, if you've ever... Um, for anybody who lurks on the Python dev mailing lists, um, it's about like that, (laughs) but at work. (laughs) Um, But, you know, know, Guido has... You know, he, he has such expertise with... Like, when you think about, like, what developing a language, like, what skills developing a language entails, um, those are skills that are incredibly useful when architecting complex systems, like, thinking thinking about abstractions that need to be very long-lived, perhaps with API design, for example. So, he's, you know, he's a very, um, he, he brings a lot of excellent um, sort of expertise to the table at Dropbox. I'm sure. Like, we also tend to get, we, we, we get into an occasional Python-related flame war, but that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's par for the course. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, one of the really valuable skills that I can think of is, like, simplicity. You know, people, yeah. pe- people see something that is simple and they think, well, that must have been easy to build because it's simple. <laughs> well, right. You know, that's that's hard with languages. That's hard with complex software. And but it it seems like he's he's at least nailed it for for Python the language. I, c- I haven't seen the Dropbox codes. So I can't say for sure, but it, I bet that skill transfers over. Yeah, definitely. Well, and you know, so the Dropbox desktop client is written in Python. It, it's um it's one it's one of if not the largest you know pieces of desktop client software that that is out in the world. And you know, Dropbox has four hundred million users. There there aren't that many 
you know, pieces of desktop software that aren't sort of bundled with an operating system distribution um, that have that level of user base. Um, so that's all in Python. It's not not in Python three, although we we periodically, you know, it's, it's a very large um, historical code base, but we do periodically revisit if we're going to uh, make the jump to Python three. That's that's super interesting. I did know that, and I, I thought it was great. So I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. Can you talk a little bit about like? just you know the internals the libraries you're using how you build it how you distribute it uh, like how, what's the story with that uh, I, I don't actually think that i'm allowed to <laughs> okay sorry no, if you're i don't don't want you to do anything you can't do but you know a lot of people build you know little utility scripts or there's a ton of web applications and, and data science apps but the sort of here's a thing with a ui that i can ship in python is is really interesting yeah, well, and Python has taken us a long way. I mean, Dropbox has been around since 2007, and, you know, what, Python gives you this cross-platform desktop client software that you can develop against pretty rapidly. Um, you know, it, we've certainly benefited, um, I think, quite a bit from, from making this early language choice. I mean, there, there, are, there are pros and cons. Like, there are definitely alternative models for desktop client development, but it's definitely served us pretty well. Yeah, I... It seems like it has served you guys really well. And when I think of companies that are like making major use of Python, well, Dropbox, maybe along with Google and a, a few others, is is right there at the top. Can you give us kind of a sense of like all the things you're doing with Python there, or you and other people, obviously? In addition to our desktop client being written in Python, um, the majority of our server side um, code is in Python as well. So we pretty, we pretty much use it for everything. There's a little bit of Go. I mean, our mobile apps are written in the languages you would expect, but Python is definitely the majority language. So do you want to talk a little bit about some of the open source projects that you work on? I saw your uh, core contributor to Twisted, for example. Yeah. So, and I have to admit that sort of there's an ebb and flow to how much of my time is spent on sort of the community and the people parts and versus the, the technical parts. I, yeah, so I, the, the first, uh, open source project that I ever contributed to was Twisted. Uh, it came out of an internship that I was doing, uh, at VMware. And I was using Twisted. So Twisted is an, I mean, maybe everybody knows it, but Twisted is an asynchronous networking library written in Python. And I was, uh, using, um, some of the primitives and some of the documentation was a little unclear to me. And I thought, oh, hey, this would be a great opportunity to, uh, like, try my hand at making my first ever open source contribution. So I created a little tiny diff for, like, a little bit of a documentation change. And, like, very nervously, I, like, quadruple checked all of the instructions, <laughs> like, contribution instructions. And then, like, you know, opened up a ticket and, like, quadruple checked all of the ticket fields and then, like, sort of sweat a little bit with my hand hovering over the submit button. Like, finally pressed submit. And, of course, everyone was super nice. So, so Glyph, who was the creator of Twisted, who incidentally, this is what San Francisco is like, incidentally, he lives in my apartment complex now. Oh, wow. Um, what a small world, huh? <laughs> right. So, Glyph, who's the creator of Twisted, and a bunch of other folks were super friendly, very willing to handhold me through the process. You know, I ended up making some more small documentation uh, contributions, like ended up sort of getting pretty involved in the community, ended up becoming a, a core committer. I ended, up, <laughs> I ended up writing a book about it with O'Reilly. Um, so that, that first little docu like nervous documentation contribution uh, ended up being a very important, A, it was very important for me because that was such a positive first experience with contributing to an open source project. Like I want everyone to have that positive first experience. It was very important for me, and and hopefully also it's been a it's been a good investment for Twisted, given that I've managed to stick around. 
so so that that's one of them and then open hatch is um a well it's both a a website and a nonprofit dedicated to lowering the barriers to entry for open source contribution and i've been um fairly involved with them as well and then i just like miscellaneous you know patches here and there to various other projects yeah core python yeah that's really cool i think that's one of the nice things about the python community is they seem pretty welcoming to new folks whereas you know, if that was like a C++ project, they might have, I don't know, not been as welcoming, right? It could have been, well, you did this wrong or whatever. Well, I, ho- I hope that all language communities and all sort of library libraries are, are recognizing how important it is to provide a good initial experience for potential contributors because it's, it's so important for you. Like if you want your language or your library to continue to evolve and be popular, like you need to be ingesting new contributors who can pick up some of the development. Um, so hopefully people are learning that. That That's for sure. And I think things like Git and GitHub and Bitbucket are really sort of opening the door to make this feel, you know, less threatening as well, right? You're not cruising around SourceForge trying to <laughs> use some old clunky tool to get, get a check-in to go in or something. Yeah, definitely. Do you have a favorite open source project? Whether you contribute to it or not? Jeez, <laughs> um, that's, or how about one, you know, one, one or two of your favorites? You don't, don't necessarily have to <laughs> exclude, be exclusive. Sure. I mean, that's, that's I, I feel like I could answer this question on a number of different levels. Um, so I have used Django at this point through several startups. And I think that Django was a very important thing to have flourished in the Python community. Like for, you know, it, it, it really was a, a big part of opening up Python being a serious language for many types of website development. Uh, so A, on a personal level, having used it quite a bit, and then B, because I think it's it's had like a very material positive impact on the community, um, that's probably a choice. Yeah, I, I would say Django definitely has had a really big impact, so that's a good one. Yeah. You know, Python itself, but that's kind of assumed, right? You go <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah. What, what, so, and, and having contributed to CPython, my challenge f- for us would be that I think we haven't quite cracked the nut on, on getting really sus- like a good, sustained uh, new developers to core Python. And that, that's a thing that we should, we, that, that's a nut that we do need to crack. Yeah, absolutely. And Guido actually made a, you know, that a, a key part of his keynote at PyCon, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's tough, though. You know, it's it's a very different world than Python, and people are drawn to Python, the language. And then you go look at CPython, and it's, to some degree, a totally different type of programming and, and skill set and so on. So Yeah. Well, and it's, it's a very mature project, um, just in terms of it's been around for a while. It, it you know, it's... It, it is the language, so sort of the, the the commitment to quality needs to be very high. Like it, we can't sort of regress regress functionality for the hundreds of thousands of, of, of people who develop against it, and then you know millions of people who end up sort of using the end software that's developed. So it's, it's like it's very mature. There, there's like a fair amount of process, and and that's all important and necessary. But figuring out how to balance that again making it an accessible environment for new contributors yeah sure i mean if you're writing software used by that many people you've got to deal with every edge case be just super careful and then on top of that it's c which means it's a little harder to do
This episode is brought to you by Upbeat. Upbeat is application monitoring for developers. It's performance monitoring, error logging, release tracking, and workflow in one simple product. Upbeat is integrated with your code base and makes monitoring and debugging of your production apps faster and your code better. Upbeat is free for an unlimited number of users and until recently has only been available for Django developers, but I'm happy to tell you they're launching Flask support. Visit upbeat.com Flask to be amongst the first to join the Flask private beta. I think it's important that people that work in Python kind of at least have a conceptual understanding of what's happening down in the C Python layer. There's a guy named Philip Guao who did a really cool uh, thing. He took his graduate class that studied the C Python code base and then took like that and put it on YouTube. So there's this thing called, he called it the C Python, a 10 hour code walk or something like that. And then I had him on show 22 to talk more about it. So I, th- I totally recommend people check them. Check that out if they want to know more about CPython. Yeah, totally. And I also, <laughs> this is such a who's who. Uh, I, so I know Philip. We were actually, uh, well, I actually know him through a couple of channels, but then we were at this, well, how would you describe it? So there, there's, a, there's a, a community that used to be called Hacker School that is now called Recurse Center, which is, it's sort of like an artist in residence program for programmers. It's sort of, an, it's a fairly unstructured environment where you um, go and you sort of invest in your programming skills for, for several months. And I've, I have vis- sort of been a visiting speaker at that program, uh, and as has Philip. So, and we've uh, actually crossed paths physically there as well as on the internet. So small, small world as per usual. <laughs> it definitely is. Where was, if that was a thing in person, where was that? Oh, so Hacker School now Recur Center is uh, in New York. Um, so, you know, I brought up your video, the Choose Your Own Python Adventure, are there other videos that are out on YouTube or other places we can find that people should check out if they're interested in more? Like of me? Yeah, or... Or, yeah I mean, of like talks that you've given that you think, hey, people should check this out. Or I guess other yeah. ones as well. <laughs> I mean, so, so many, many of the talks that I've given at various Python conferences are online. Uh, and you can, find, you can find them on PyVideo. Um, maybe one of the most gratifying things for me is, uh, so for a couple of years at uh, PyCon US, I did an intro to Python tutorial. So, you know, it's a three-hour tutorial for absolute beginners, assumes no prior programming experience. Like, we do, we walk everyone through everything, like, from the installation and environment setup on through the first couple of hours in the language. And that's... Uh, I, I, we're at something like 200,000 people have watched those videos, which is, well, it's a lot of people. Like that's incredibly gratifying to me that there are that many people who were like wanted to learn Python and then took the time to have that first experience watching, um, uh, you know, like sort of watching that, that PyCon tutorial. So that's the one that I may be most proud of. Okay. That's really cool. I mean, just the, the thought that you've, you know, influenced that many people down that path is, it's gotta be gratifying. Yeah. And I, you know, I really, like, the beginners are where my heart is. And I, I think some of that comes from being, I mean, comparatively, a sort, of, sort of, comparatively, quote unquote, late to learning how to program. So not starting until university. And then being, you know, honestly, being surrounded at, at school by people who had been doing it for a lot longer and really sort of feeling like I was catching up for a long time. 
I think that built up a lot of empathy that has stayed with me through the years around like what it's like to be a, a new programmer, what it's like when it everything maybe feels foreign and you maybe are surrounded by people who, who it feels like have been doing this for longer than you. And it's really wanting to provide an excellent experience for those people. That's really interesting. I hadn't really thought of it that way before, but I didn't get into programming until like a ways into college and, you know, not super deep into it until kind of my senior year almost in college. And I think it does help you teach teach people who are new because you the, the sort of pain of learning is fresh. Like if you learn it when you're 10 years old, it's just it's like learning language. Like I don't remember how I learned English. I just know English, right? So yes. I I have, feel totally unqualified to teach English, but I do remember learning programming and all the mistakes I made and so on. So that that's that's quite a insight. Uh what else would you like to talk about while you're on the show? There's maybe a, there's a call to action here yeah, absolutely. for the listeners. Well, and I'm not sure, you know, there, there are probably, probably listeners from many, many backgrounds, but I would encourage everyone to think about sort of what they get out of Python, the language and community, and to consider, uh, if you're not already, giving back in at least one way, either technically or, or in a more community-oriented way. And if that is, uh, like, taking the plunge and, and making your first open-source contribution, if that's... Uh, volunteering with your user group at an upcoming uh, workshop, you know, whatever it might look like, I, I would definitely, you know, one of one of the really one of the important things about Python is that it it is almost entirely community driven. There is not um, there's not a giant company or consortium behind behind the language and community. Um, most of the conferences are. Are, are volunteer driven. And so it, it really is like sort of the, the success of the community and it requires us all working together to drive the language and community forward. So I'd encourage everyone sort of to take that, take, take, take that opportunity seriously and, and, you know, pick at least one thing that you'd want to get that you want to contribute by the end of the year and, and go ahead and do it. Yeah, that's a great call to action. And I definitely second that. I'll throw a few more ideas out there in that, in that vein. Uh, our code is coming up in December, you know, volunteer at your local school. It's surprisingly easy. There's actually a lot of Python sort of online hour of code focused things. So, you know, you could maybe help, uh, push a kid in a direction that they start down the programming path where they might not have otherwise. Last year I volunteered at my daughter's elementary school and we did programming for first, second, third, fourth, and fifth grade. We did a whole bunch of little classes throughout the week. And then three or four months later, I saw a kid who was in third grade walking to school with a JavaScript book. <laughs> and I had talked to his dad and he said, yeah, that's because he did that hour of code thing with you. How awesome is that? Oh, that's awesome. Right? So, I mean, that's like a few hours once a year you can do that. And if you learn something, you're, you're exploring some new library and you're having a hard time finding documentation or it didn't seem clear, like record a video and put it on YouTube, right? Of, of what you figure out and just like to teach somebody how to get started, right? A lot, a lot of ways to get back. Jessica, let me ask you a few questions, put you slightly on the spot before I let you go. <laughs> sure, yeah. A <laughs> uh, question I always ask my uh, guests um, at the end of the show is, what's your favorite editor? If you're going to write some Python code, what do you open up? <laughs> sure. I mean, I'm an Emacs user through and through. Yeah? Learned it at MIT and that was that? Yep, pretty much. Hey, you, you can, look, you can run a web browser inside of Emacs. Why would you not want to do that? <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And then... You know, there's so many awesome packages out on PyPI that people can just go and grab, you know. What are some of the ones that you think people maybe don't know about that you'd like to highlight or talk about? 
Oh, gosh, I, I think my answers to this are probably unfortunately quite niche. There are lots of there there are there are libraries that facilitate. Uh, well, how do I even describe this? Uh, I do. I, I I participate in a lot of capture the flag events, and so there are a lot of like Python bindings for various types of like program int- introspection that you would do. <laughs> like if you want to disassemble something and then like trace flows to the program, there are like there are Python libraries that facilitate that. So like where where or, or to, or to, pro- to to automate some some of those processes. So where you might use like Idaho Pro or whatever to to be disassembling and analyzing a binary for a capture the flag event. Like you can actually do a lot of this stuff in Python. But that's like a super niche answer that is maybe <laughs> not what you were going for. <laughs> no, that's good though. I mean, everybody has their own specialty, and it's it's cool. It's like otherwise we'd hear NumPy. We'd hear requests. We'd hear SQL <laughs> sure. alchemy. Yeah, right. I mean, so that's that's exactly what I was looking for, yeah. really. Although the other thing I would say is that it's very, very cool that there, like, there are such strong, there, there are such strong communities around certain various disciplines, and that's very exciting for me. So it's like astronomers have all kinds of like super sophisticated astronomy focused packages on PyPI. Like basically all of the science disciplines, um, for like, uh, finance, there are a bunch of like very sophisticated Python packages. And it's like the fact that we've gotten to that level of specialization and like the ability to support these domains in this very sophisticated way. I think that is very cool. That is, yeah, right. That's an absolutely huge win for the Python community. And I think it's just accelerating the, the diversity of people coming from these different, different disciplines. Yeah, that's great. Uh, final call to action. People get out there, contribute. Donate your time, give a little back. Jessica, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you bet. Talk to you later. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Today's guest was Jessica McKellar, and this episode has been sponsored by Hired and Optbeat. Thank you guys for supporting the show. Hired wants to help you find your next big thing. Visit hired.com slash talk python to me to get five or more offers with salary and equity presented right up front and a special listener signing bonus of $4,000. OptBeat is mission control for your Python web applications. Keep an eye on errors, performance, profiling, and more for your Django and Flask web apps. You can find the links from today's show at talkpython.fm slash episodes slash show slash 30. Be sure to subscribe to the show. Open your favorite podcatcher and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes and direct RSS feeds in the footer of the website. Our theme music is Developers, Developers, Developers by Corey Smith, who goes by Smix. You can hear his entire song on talkpython.fm. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks for listening, everyone. Smix, take us out of here. Stating with my voice, there's no norm that I can feel within. Haven't been sleeping, I've been using lots of rest. I'll pass the mic back to who rocked it best.